When we open the word of God, right? It's not an intellectual. God doesn't want just to make us smarter about things. He wants to help us obey him better. Why? Because flourishing, your life will flourish more if you walk in faithfulness to Jesus. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mom said to the little boy, are bugs good to eat? Let's not talk about such things at the dinner table, son, the mother replied. After dinner, she asked her son, she said, now, baby, what did you want to ask me? He said, oh, nothing. There was a bug in your soup, but now it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we just feel like putting some topics off and not talking about them at that moment, right? But in Mark chapter 10, where we are in in our going through the story of Jesus' life, We find Jesus talking about something that I imagine that he probably would have preferred not to have talked about, but yet at the same time, he needed to talk about it. We're going to finish the chapter this morning, and I tried to find a theme to connect the next three events recorded by Mark, but I just really couldn't find something that tied the three stories together. Nothing really jived. And so we're going to treat each story independently this morning hopefully with its, own, with its own thought for us or its own message for us. So we're going to call this first story, The Prediction of Dying. And we find it in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them that the things that would happen to him. See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and he will rise after three days. This is the third time that Mark records for us that Jesus told them that he was going to die. You'll remember the very first time he did this, Peter rebukes him, and Jesus reprimands Peter. Uh, The second time, he gives a few more details. No one dares ask him anything, but this text records for us that they did not understand what he meant. Today, in in this third prediction, there are more details, but still, again, no response recorded from them. Now, you notice that it says that they were following him on the road, and the disciples were astonished, and the people were afraid. No one really knows what they were astonished by or what they were afraid of, You know, if we take the context into mind, and I think context is always king, by the way, if you're seeking to interpret scripture, the context of the passage in which you're looking or reading, that is what matters most. And the context for this, at least in Mark's gospel, is that uh, Jesus has just talked about how if you don't enter the kingdom of God like a child, you will never enter it. And then he said, hey, listen, it's really hard for the rich people to get into my kingdom. So context-wise, maybe the disciples, and this is just this is just my speculation, but maybe the disciples are astonished because they're beginning to get it. 
that the kingdom is a bit different than they were expecting. So maybe they're astonished by that. Maybe the people are afraid because they've heard him say to the rich guy, give everything up and come and follow me. Maybe they're afraid because they're thinking, wow, I don't want to give up my stuff, you know, or maybe maybe they're afraid because they think, well, if the rich people, if they heard that conversation with Jesus, maybe they're thinking, wow, if the rich person has a hard time getting into his kingdom, how will I ever get into his kingdom. That that would be my best guess as to why they are afraid and why they are astonished. But let's look for just a moment at the details that Jesus gives them in this third prediction. He says, first of all, he would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And most likely Jesus is referencing what Judas is about to do just a, a little time from now. And what I want you to notice is that what Jesus predicts actually comes true. He then he says, in another detail, he would be rejected by them. That would be the scribes and the priests and condemned to death. And obviously Jesus is pointing them to the kangaroo courts that would take place in just a short uh, time where he would be, you know, he would go there and they would have liars there and they would meet in the middle of the night, which was against their law, all that kind of stuff. But notice that Jesus predicts it and it comes to pass. He would be handed over to the Gentiles, he said, and that's exactly what would happen? He would be handed over by the Jewish leadership to the Romans so that they might execute him. He would be mocked, Jesus said, and he would be spit on. And indeed, you remember, that's exactly what happened. He was mocked. He was made fun of. You know, he was, uh, they, they made fun of him. Hey, they blindfolded him, hit him and say, hey, predict who hit you if you know all things, that kind of thing. He would be tortured. Jesus said, I would be flogged. And you remember that he was whipped with a with a whip that had nine cords on it, supposedly embedded with stone and, and, and bone, so that when it whipped Jesus, it would rip his flesh. He would be tortured, and he would be, just like he said. He predicted here to them he would be executed, and he was executed. He was killed by the Jewish leadership and the Roman authorities on a cross, which we read about in the Bible. It's called the place of the skull. I know you know this, but just let me remind you, Golgotha is Hebrew for the place of the skull. Calvary, you know, Calvary is Latin for the place of the skull. Jesus died evidently on a hill. They say there's one outside of Jerusalem that if you look at it, it sort of looks like a skull. And the, the final prediction he said is, but I will return to life after three days. I will live again. I will resurrect. I will not stay dead. And again, this is exactly what happened. And we're not told what their reaction is to this. Did they ask any questions? Did they rebuke him? Said, ah, that ain't going to happen. I guarantee you that didn't happen, right? <laughs> after, after Peter's uh, first rebuke. So here's the question for us with this story. Why does Jesus keep repeating himself? Why does he keep telling them this? And here's another question for us. Why does Mark keep recording it for us, right? Why does Mark record this truth that Jesus told him three times that he would die? Well, I think it's because, and again, this is where interpretation comes in and all. So I'm, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think I'm reasonable and I think I'm right. I think it's recorded for us because Jesus wanted them to know and us to know, when I die on that cross, it is not going to be an accident. It's not going to be because I like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. It's going to be, this is my plan. This is what I'm intending. This is what God is intending. And so he repeats himself over and over again that they might know this. Not long before this, Jesus told his disciples, recorded for us in John 10, 
Jesus said this, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus is saying, I am laying down my life. Nobody is taking it from me. This is going to happen according to the plan of God. Now, I loved, uh, I loved what you said, Matt, about Peter, that he would go on and, 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 and preach and do all kinds of things. Well, his first sermon is in front of thousands of people. And, uh, and we find it in Acts chapter 2. Let me just read a few words from that sermon. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter preaching. 3,000 are going to get saved, so there's an awful lot of people there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, being delivered, listen, being delivered by the, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter said, you crucified Jesus, but it was not by your plan. It was God, by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. God delivered Jesus up to you and to the Romans. In other words, God made sure that the crucifixion of Jesus would come to pass. I know I'm repeating myself, but I want to be clear. It was according to the predetermined, predestined plan of God that Jesus would die on the cross. Now, those verses that I just read you are often used by people, by, by brothers and sisters, to say, you see, God predetermines every evil that's come to pass. These verses prove it, because God predetermined, predestined, made this come about. That proves that everything in the world is being predetermined and predestined and caused by God to come about, including every piece of evil in the world. I want you to know, I don't think that's true. I don't think that because God predetermined the death of Jesus, that he's predetermined everything that comes to pass. In the Old Testament, speaking of the sacrifice of children, God said, they have built high places to Baal on which to burn their children in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, something that I, will ne I have never commanded or mentioned. I never entertain the thought. One of the translations says it never even entered into my mind to, to cause that or to command that. So I don't believe that God has predetermined all evil. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus died according to the predetermined plan of God. It was brought about by the fact that God is sovereign and sits in his heaven and does whatever he wants. And he is omniscient and he is omnipowerful and he can do anything he wants. And he has brought about the death of Jesus. And I believe this is repeated for us. And why Mark records it yet again is because God wants you to know that this is the plan of God. Jesus was to die for us. Jesus was to lay down his life for us. And so it's told to us so that we'd understand it. The wages of sin is death. 
Jesus dies. He dies to pay for the death of our body, for our spiritual death, for our separation from God. Jesus died so that he might atone for everything that you and I are in debt to God for. He died for you. And so today, somebody's already said this, this, but today if you hear his voice, you must repent. Listen, if you hear his voice, if the Spirit of God is tugging on you and you're not already one of his kingdom, you must, you should respond to his voice. Change your mind about who is king in your life. Change your mind about Jesus. Repent of your sin and believe the good news about Jesus. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. You must decide, like these young men illustrated for us this morning, you must decide, will I follow Jesus and be his disciple or not? And if you don't come as a child, you will never enter his kingdom. And you know what? Your idols can keep you from being a part of his kingdom. That brings us to the second story. We'll call this one the priority of serving. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. I tell you, that's got to read different in Hebrew. I mean, because that just reads so terrible, doesn't it? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Well, he says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able Uh, They told him, and Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. I remember years ago, uh, Ernest Green retired here in the county. Ernest Green was the pastor of uh, St. Paul's Holiness Church out on 31, and he became a dear friend. And I was invited to the celebration of his retirement. It was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so as soon as we ended, I headed that way. There was a lunch, and as soon as I got there, everybody was eating, but I was ushered to one of the head tables. And then after dinner, guess what? I'm ushered up on the stage. And I was already tired, and I knew that wasn't a good combination. Hot room, big lunch, I'm already tired. Yes, it was the most embarrassing, one of the most embarrassing days of my life because I could not stay awake. Could not stay awake. Some people want the seats of honor. I didn't want the seat of honor. I didn't want to sit up up front. I didn't want to go to the head table, right? I didn't want the seat of honor. Some people, some people want it. And obviously, James and John wanted that seat of honor. They, they wanted to sit at Jesus right and left in his coming kingdom. Now, did you notice this? I noticed this. It stands out to me that Jesus isn't upset by their asking. And I mean, he's not even upset by the way they ask it either. We want you to do whatever we ask of you, right? He doesn't seem to be upset by that. And I've wondered about that. Maybe it's because Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But he asked them a question in return. He says, are you able to drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism? And of course, they have no idea what he means, but they say, oh yeah, we're all in. We'll definitely drink that cup and we'll definitely be baptized with that, right? Well, the cup that Jesus is referring to and the baptism that he's talking about are both the same thing. He's talking about the suffering and death that is coming his way for who he is. And he's basically asking them, are you willing to die for for me? Are you willing to die for me? Let me ask you that question this morning. Are you willing to die for Jesus? You know, chances are none of us are are 
are going to be placed in that position? And you know, it's really a theoretical question because for you and me to sit here in the comfort, the comfort of our air climated room, right? With absolutely no tribulation and no persecution. It's one thing for us to say, Oh yeah, I would die for you. It's another if you're living in Afghanistan or you're living in North Korea or someplace where you know, asking you whether you're willing to die for Jesus actually means something tangibly real. And I'm not saying that none of us in this room would ever have to be faced with the question, would you die for Jesus? But I tell you, in my notes, I've got it written here. Would you be willing to die for Jesus? But here's a better question for us. Would you be willing to live for Jesus and die to your desires into what you want? Are you willing to live for Jesus, which means dying to what you want, rather than saying, God, I, I just, hey, I get it, you got this plan for me, but I, I really want to do what I want to do. That's the better question for us, I think. Jesus tells them, you will indeed drink of my cup, and James would drink of it not very long after Jesus. James would be the first apostle to die. He was killed by, killed by Herod. John would be the last to die. So these two brothers are bookends to the deaths of the apostles. John, we don't know exactly how he died. I think the, the tradition is that John died of natural causes of old age in Ephesus, but he lived his life suffering for Jesus and imprisoned for, for Jesus. He drank the cup, though a tad bit different. The question, the question that Jesus is asking, are you willing to suffer for me, is really what he's asking. Um, he says, but those two seats you asked for, they're not mine to give out. They've, they've already been reserved. They've already been reserved for, for someone. I had a thought. This is just a Jimmy thought. There's absolutely no biblical basis to assert what I'm going to suggest, but this is just a thought. You know, in the, in the kingdom that Jesus is forging and that will come, a pass, and will come to pass is an eternal kingdom. It has no end. I mean, that's hard. We don't know. Our whole lives are sandwiched in with a beginning and an end, right? But in the kingdom to come, there is no end. And there'll be no end to your life and to my life, right? And I thought maybe over the eons of, of time to come, maybe, maybe we'll all get to sit at Jesus' right and left at some point, you know, for some reason. In other words, maybe Jesus says they're reserved not for one person. Maybe they're reserved for all of us getting to sit by Jesus at some point, you know, just a thought. But whatever it is, they weren't for James and they weren't for John. Verse 41, when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to become indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. The other disciples get wind of what James and John have asked for, and it tells us that they become indignant. Remember what indignant meant from last week? It means they became annoyed. They became angry with them. I've often speculated that they were annoyed because they didn't think of it first, right? Um, but uh, most likely they're angry because what they're reading into what James and John did is that James and John want to lord it over them. 
And so that's probably why they're annoyed. And in fact, Jesus' answer kind of speaks to the fact that that's probably it. They're, they don't want James and John to lord it over them in the kingdom, uh, in the kingdom to come. And so here we go with repetition again. This is something Jesus has talked about before. He talks about it again. Why does he use repetition so much? Because we're so hard headed and it takes a lot of times for us, it takes a lot for us sometimes to get these things, right? But he's told them this. He's going to tell them again. In the fallenness of men, men want to rule over each other. You know, in the fact that God created us good and everything was good, but then we fell and now everything at some level has been corrupted. Well, that corruption is that we want to rule over everyone else. We want to be the boss. And I get it. That's not true from everybody. Some people have introverted personalities. All they want to be is a hermit. But by and large, by and large, people want, they they definitely don't want someone else to rule over them. But so many of us want to rule over others. We want to be the boss. We want to be served. We want to have the power and the pleasure that comes with power. We, we, sometimes in our quest for this, we become tyrants. Jesus said that just a second ago. We become tyrants as we seek these powerful and lofty positions. But Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, and notice this, he's not condemning the idea of wanting to be great in the kingdom to come. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, hey, there's no great people in my kingdom. He doesn't say, why do you want to be great in my kingdom? He doesn't say that. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you must be a servant and you must be a servant of all. And actually the word he uses is slave. You must be a slave of all. Then he gives this example of his own. For even the son of man, even the son of man, even myself, the Messiah. And of course, we know he's more than just the Messiah. He's actually the second person of God who's become one of us, right? He said, even me, I didn't come here to be served. I didn't come here to get you to serve me. I came here because I came here to serve you. And I came here to give my life as a ransom for all of you. Even me, the son of man. So, you know, guys, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to be like me. You've got to be a servant. Now, I just, let me real quickly, I want to share, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do, how do I serve others? How do I serve others? Well, Philippians 2 is my go-to passage. I, I guess I, I, would, I would love to be this person. I, I, I want to be this person. But this is, this, these are three marks if you want to be that servant. Here's the first one. In humility, you prefer others is more important than yourself. You choose them over you. You're nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. It's so hard in a world that prizes putting yourself first to put other people first. If you don't believe it, just look at your marriage or your family. How hard is it, young people, for you to prefer your brother or your sister, your younger brother or your older brother even? How hard is it for you to prefer them over yourself? You know, it's kind of hard. Or in a marriage, sometimes it's hard for us to prefer our, our spouse over ourselves. We, we want what we want. Yet, yet here Jesus says, greatness in my kingdom is being a servant. Here's what servanthood looks like. It's, it's deferring to others. It's, it's preferring that, that I would serve someone else over against myself. Now, I realize that some people can take advantage of you if that's your heart, right? 
If that's your heart to serve them, some people can take advantage of you because they know it and they don't, they don't have any scruples. They're not trying to be a servant. They want to lord it over you. So they can indeed take advantage of you. And so at times you may need to draw boundaries, but can I be really honest with you? Most of us are not suffering from preferring others too much. Most of us are suffering from, from being too selfish rather than preferring other people above ourselves. You want to be great in his kingdom, then, uh, then defer to others. Defer to others. Prefer them over yourself. Number two, in, in that Philippian passage, make it a point to not just prefer and, 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 and defer to others. It says, look out for their interest. So if the other one's kind of a passive thing, I would say this is an active thing. Let each of you not only look out for his own interests. So God says, yeah, you need to take care of your needs, but also be looking out for the interest of others. Make sure you care about issues of justice for others. When people are suffering injustices, you should stand up and fight for them. You make sure that other people are not taking advantage of others. And by all means, make sure that you don't take advantage of others, right? Because you're looking out for their interests. And the last thing, the third one was empty yourself of pride and self-righteousness. So here the passage goes on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in a, excuse me, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And and let me quickly say, I'm not not implying that Jesus had to empty himself of pride and self-righteousness. He did not. Uh, he did, in my opinion, empty himself of, of his divine prerogatives. He emptied himself of the glory of heaven. He did not empty himself of his nature as God or his essence as God. But he did empty himself of those things. But, but you and I don't have the prerogatives of God. What we have to empty ourselves of to become a servant is I've got to empty myself of my pride and self-righteousness that makes me feel superior to others, that makes me feel that Hey, they should be serving me rather than me serving serving them. I need to empty myself of feelings that I'm better than others, that I'm more loved by God than others, uh, that I'm more important to God than others. And it's only, I think, when I empty myself of those sort of things, can I serve you the way Jesus is telling us to be a great servant in his kingdom. Greatness is found by emptying myself, lowering myself, choosing, not choosing the best seats in the house. So, so let me get practical real quick. How, how do I do that? Because the disciples had a hard time with it, right? He keeps coming back to it. And which one of us in this room doesn't have to keep coming back to this, right? So how, how, do, how do we do this? And I mean, I know you're going to be underwhelmed, but, you know, here's how we do it, I think. Man, we wake up every morning and we pray. And we say, God, I'm still so prone to be selfish. I'm still so prone to be about me. Would you help me today die to myself and prefer others as more important than myself. Would you help me today to look out for the interest of others? And God, by all means, please help me not be self-righteous or prideful. 
And so we just wake up every morning and we pray and we pray and we, and we just continue daily, daily, daily doing that. And one of you guys said in your testimony, you said, I, I found out that it's not a one and done sort of deal, that following Jesus is an ongoing, everyday commitment. And yes, that's right. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say here about being a servant. So wake up every day and say, God, here, I'm praying today. Help me this day be a servant. And the other thing, practically, again, you're going to be underwhelmed again. It's just do it. It. Do it. Serve. Just serve. Choose to serve. You don't want to do it, but serve. Because the more we serve, I think the better we get at it and the better servant will be. In other words, kind of like practice, right? As I practice serving, I just become, it becomes second nature to me. I just, you know, I just, I do it all the time. I'm getting good at pickleball because I practice. The more you serve, the better servant. No, no, not serve like that. The more you serve like Jesus, the better you're going to be at it. So just do it. Just do it. Now bring me to the last story. So hang in there. We'll call this story the power of faith. Verse 46. They came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Uh, by the way, I just realized this this morning, Bartimaeus, Bar, son of Timaeus. So uh, he's the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said, have courage, get up, he's calling you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, came to Jesus, and then Jesus answered him, well, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Rabboni, or Rabbi, the blind man, the blind man said to him, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Now, this is the story of blind Bartimaeus. I asked Anne, what's that children's song about blind Bartimaeus? She goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I said, there's a children's song. Well, it's actually a Southern gospel song. And we, we played it this morning in the 8 o'clock prayer time. And someone said, can we get the Beachy Family Singers to sing that about blind Bartimaeus? Um, we don't know anything about blind Bartimaeus except this but we know his name. And you might say, well, that's kind of strange. Yeah, it is strange. He's one of the few people that we actually know the name of the guy that Jesus healed. And his name was uh, son of Timaeus, all right? And uh, he had a terrible disease. Uh, he had blindness. And blindness was a terrible disease because no one could cure it. Uh, no one opened the eyes of the blind except for Jesus. Um, but the part of the story that I think Mark highlights for us, and I want to highlight for us this morning, is the faith of Bartimaeus. It was because of his faith that Jesus would heal him. So what can we learn about his faith? So here's just a few things. Number one, he had faith in Jesus that he was the Messiah, that he was the king, right? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David's a messianic term. Bartimaeus was blind, but he was not deaf. And he'd heard all these stories about Jesus, the, the man from Nazareth, who was the son of David, and he believed it. Here's another thing about his faith. He had faith that Jesus could save him from his blindness. 
And so he kept hollering out, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. What he's talking about is Jesus, save me from my blindness. Jesus, please heal me from my blindness. I am sure that he had heard countless stories of how Jesus made the lame to walk. Maybe even heard stories of Jesus healing the blind and giving them back their sight. But he had heard the stories and he had faith that Jesus could heal him. He had, and I'm going to call it true biblical faith as opposed to some other kind of faith. In the book of Hebrews, God defines faith for us as this assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things not seen. Well, blind Bartimaeus had an unshakable assurance and an unwavering conviction that Jesus could do what he wanted him to do or what he needed him to do. And so it says, many warned him to keep quiet. Shut up, Bartimaeus. But he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. The reason I think that Bartimaeus had biblical faith is that they tried to get him to be quiet. They tried to get him to turn away from what he believed in, but he would not. He was all the louder. He was all the more vocal about about Jesus, needing Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, after the resurrection and James has become a believer himself, he, he talks about faith and he says, faith is not intellectual assent to certain propositional truths. And I'm going to make that more in the vernacular for us. Faith isn't just believing some facts about something. Faith is a conviction, James says, that moves us to act. And he says, you know, show me your faith by just your rhetoric. I'm going to show you my faith by my actions and by my works. And, and even in Sunday school this morning, we heard that, that we're saved by grace alone through faith, right? Apart from our works. But that kind of faith never remains alone. That kind of faith always moves us to action. And that's what happened. He would not keep quiet when he realized that Jesus was there. And as they told him to shut up, he realized Jesus is getting closer. And so he hollers all the more. Biblical faith isn't head knowledge, everyone. Biblical faith is active, dynamic, functional, transformative. It changes my life. And I heard it in y'all's testimonies. I heard it in your testimonies. That there was a time where I, where I had these ideas of faith, but now I, I am following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. It actually affects us and causes us to act a certain way when we have true biblical faith. And I, I believe Bartimaeus had it. The next one, his faith saved him. Verse 51, then Jesus answered him, said, what do you want? Rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said, go, your faith has saved you. Now, I know what Jesus just said, but it wasn't his faith as a power. It wasn't his faith as a work that he performed that saved him. It was Jesus that saved him. It was the power of Jesus that took away his blindness. It was the power of Jesus that restored his sight, not his faith. If there was some sort of inerrant, inherent power in faith then we wouldn't need Jesus, right? We just need faith. And we'd say all the faith of every other religion is powerful to save them if faith is what saves you. It's, it's not the faith in and of itself that saves you. It's Jesus 
who saves us, okay? So what did Jesus mean when he said, now follow me here, this is important. Your faith has saved you. What did Jesus mean? He meant that God's power moved to heal him in response to his faith. You see, his faith doesn't have this inherent power in itself, it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus. Jesus is the power. But when we put our faith in Jesus, that's why Bartimaeus was healed. Faith is what pleases God because faith, faith is what pleases God. So it's faith that moves the hand of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So God works to save us by grace, but he gives us that because of our faith in response to our faith. Faith is never treated in the Bible as a work. It's always a response to the work and the revelation of God. And when we respond in faith, when you respond in faith, your faith God saves you through your faith, okay? And that's why Jesus would say, Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you. Your faith is what moved God to work in your life. And what was Bartimaeus' faith? Let's look at it again. He believed Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus could save him. He had conviction and assurance uh, that moved him to action. All of those are the same, I think, for us, okay? But then look at the last one. His faith led him to follow Jesus. And maybe you would say this is a stretch, but I kind of don't think so. Immediately he, he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. And I mean, maybe, maybe Bartimaeus is just going to be walking down the road a piece following Jesus because he happened to be going that way. But I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying Bartimaeus wanted to be with Jesus. And so after having been healed and he's, he's now can see there's a million things in places he might want to go. But what does he do? He follows after Jesus. <laughs> he wanted to be near him. So folks, listen, I'm convinced that true faith in Jesus wants to be near Jesus. True faith wants to follow. And I know not all of us who follow Jesus agree on this. Some of us say faith is one thing. You believe certain things about Jesus and you say, I believe you're the Lord. But whether you follow him is a different thing. It, it happens subsequent to that. I, I don't think so. I think trusting Jesus and following Jesus are so intertwined you can't separate those things. So when Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were on the boat, Jesus said, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. To the rich young ruler, he said, come follow me, and you'll have treasures in heaven. When he stood before the crowd of disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Unless you think all of these things are just during the lifetime of Jesus, and he's just talking about, you know, following him during the lifetime. This is what he said to another group. He said, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And Jesus wasn't asking everyone to follow along behind him during his earthly ministry. When Jesus saw Matthew and the tax collector sitting in the office, he said to him, follow me and leaving everything behind, he, he got up and began to follow him. And I could go on and on. There's a lot more about following Jesus. My point is that faith, the kind of faith that Barth Bartimaeus had, the kind of faith that you and I have to have is the kind of faith that says, Jesus, 
You're my king. I believe who you are, and I believe you can save me. And and I am going to come to you with strong conviction, and and I am going to follow you. So I'm, I'm finished. That's the end of the text. Here's how I'm going to close. I want to invite you this morning to follow Jesus, and I want to be unambiguous. I want to invite you this morning to repent of your sin, to change your mind about Jesus, that's what the word repentance in our English translates the the word metanoia, which means to change your mind. So Jesus says, change your mind, change your mind about me, change your mind about sin. And then he's saying, basically turn to me and follow after me. So I'm asking you this morning, would you believe on the, on the Lord Jesus and would you follow him? Would you follow him? Would you, would you turn from your sin, repent of your sin? So that Jesus can save you from your sin, from spiritual death and eternal separation from God. I'm asking you to receive Jesus as your king and I'm asking you to follow him. And I know what you're all thinking, man, everybody in this room already does that. I'm told all the time that that's not true. I'm telling you. Because I'm, I was, I was, I was uneasy with this. Not because I don't believe this, but because I feel like, you know, it's like asking the same crowd over and over and over the same thing. But you know what? Matt's words this morning, that's unplanned. But here's the deal. If the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart right now, and you're saying, I need to believe on Jesus and follow Jesus, I want you to do something right now really hard. I want you to stand to your feet. Anybody here? Spirit of God's tugging on you, and you just need to believe on the Lord Jesus Stand to your feet. Right, you can sit back down. Anybody else? Do you want to stand up? Anybody else? For those of us that didn't stand, here's how I've been ending every sermon. I don't know that I'll always continue to do this, but I really, it's resonated with me. When we leave the Word of God we should at least be thinking, what's the I will statement for me? I will do this. Because Jesus said, teaching them to do what? You finish it for me. Teaching them to, to observe, what does that mean? To obey, right? Everything that I've taught you. So guys, this is not an intellectual exercise this morning. Whenever we open the Word of God, and I realize this is my iPad, but it's still the Word of God. I got it right here. So when we open the Word of God, right, it's not an intellectual. God doesn't want just to make us smarter about things. He wants to help us obey Him better. Why? Because flourishing, your life will flourish more if you walk in faithfulness to Jesus. It'll be, and not say it'll be easier necessarily, but it will flourish. It'll flourish with joy and peace. It'll flourish. But it's not necessarily easier. So what is your I will statement this morning? What are you going to do in response? Remember, there were three things. There was the story of his dying. There was the story of servanthood. And there was the story of faith. So what is your I will statement this morning? What does God want you to do? Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.